Hi, everyone, and welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. So, in May of 2020, George Floyd was killed by a cop. That moment went viral, and it sparked a nationwide reckoning, both with racial injustice, but really with police brutality and problems within policing. And so there was a lot of conversation about how to reform the police in that time, and there were movements like Defund the Police, which we talked about last season, and then other smaller ideas to reform specific policies within policing, like qualified immunity and use of force. In the months since, and the year since that, we've seen that 2020 was simultaneously a time when people were talking about all these ways to reform the police, but also a time when crime and homicides particularly were up nationally. We know that in 2020, homicides went up between 25 and 40% in the U.S., which was the biggest increase in 60 years. So that gives us this question of how do we tackle the problems of policing and the problems of mass incarceration, but also the problem of violent crime, which disproportionately harms poor communities and communities of color and can have drastic effects on people's lives, even outside the people who are being murdered. So... To think about this question, I wanted to talk to David L. Weisberg, who is the executive director of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy and the chief science advisor at the Police Foundation, because he has some ideas about how we can change policing to make it more effective and more just. And these, these ideas are innovations in policing using statistics and research methods and more targeted efforts to tackle violent crime while not over-policing. An important part of his research that we'll talk about, but I want to talk about before also, is that one of his major findings is that homicides and violent crimes, and really all crime, happen not just in specific neighborhoods, they're not just centralized in specific neighborhoods or among specific groups of people, but they're really on streets, in specific street corners. One of the big statistics is that 1% of streets in New York City produce about 25% of crime, and 5% of streets in the city produce half of the crime. With those statistics in mind, enjoy my conversation with David L. Weisberg. David, thank you for joining us. So my first question is, what do do we know about crime and the geography of crime, generally? In the early years of criminology, most criminologists were thinking more about why people commit crime, what kinds of people. Early in my career, I became interested in why crime occurs more often in certain places. And I spent a long time of looking at that issue, both in terms of And what to know, really, from my work and other people's work, is that crime is incredibly concentrated at micro-units of geography. So, in large cities across the United States and indeed around the world, about 5% of the streets produce about 50% of crime. And 1% of streets produce about 5%. And I call that the law of crime concentration. It's not exactly the same in each place, but it's relatively close. It's quite amazing. And when I originally did this, I, I, I did it in Seattle, uh, Washington. I found that 5% of the streets produce 50% of the crime each year over a 15-year period. Uh, then I went to Tel Aviv and I did a study and I found that 5% of the streets produce 50% of the crime. Now, it differs a little, 4%, 6% the, uh, bandwidth, if you like. But 
Overall, crime is incredibly concentrated. And the fact that crime is incredibly concentrated provides tremendous opportunities for public policy, for doing something about crime. So those are actually the exact same numbers that I found for New York. The New York Daily News published those like two, three weeks ago. Exact same numbers. So what? Well, con- that was my article in the Daily News. <laughs> oh, it was. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, so why? Why do we have any sense of why that is? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I'll say that New York. Uh, that's a, that was a part of a study I've done for the Manhattan Institute. But New York is like the other cities we've looked at. It's quite amazing, right? If you think about it, yeah. Uh, it's 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 you know, uh, why do you become a scientist? In a way, it's it's a matter of discovery of learning. Things. So when when I started to see that in every city I was looking at, about the same proportion of street streets, a small proportion produced a lot of the crime, and about the same proportion of crime, that was really an important, an interesting finding for me, and very exciting. Um, so the question becomes, why is crime? Coming? Well, the, fr- the first step, of course, is always descriptive. Like, crime is concentrated, right? Yeah. It seems to be concentrated in places across the country and across the world. Um, but obviously, the next question is, why is crime so common? Now, I'll say that we should recognize that a lot of uh, uh, things we look at are concentrated. Uh, in economics, uh, there's something called the uh, Pareto Principle, and it, it, it says that uh, and a fellow worked in the area of business named Duran. Uh, he said about 20% of the factories produce about 80% of the goods. Mm. So concentration is a part of social life more generally, I just want to note, not only true to the problem of crime. Pareto actually said that, that in his garden, uh, 20% of the peas, uh, the pea pods produced uh, 80% of the peas. So this seems to be a, a, this idea of concentration, well, it's not always the same number. In other words, not always the same levels of concentration. There's also concentration in computer chips, producing yeah. uh, memory, etc. But uh, the idea of concentration is very broad. But the question becomes, what in criminology uh, is causing that? And uh, I think there's an area that we've just began, begun to work in, and some of those things are, that we find cause that concentration are quite, once you think about it, you say, oh, well, that was obvious. For example, I did a study of juvenile crime. found it was even more concentrated than adult crime. And what, where, where, did I, where did I, where those crime, juvenile crime hotspots? Well, they were in juvenile activity spaces, you know, malls, stores with gaming and stuff that would attract juveniles, uh, near uh, uh, transportation hubs near schools and things of this sort. So, uh, so some of it is just if you sat around and thought and asked yourself, why would there be more crime at that place? Now, we know things like arterial roads. There are more crimes on arterial roads. Why would you think there'd be more crime on arterial roads? Uh, I don't know. Well, isn't that there's more people around? Oh, yeah. Businesses, except, in other words, these things uh, uh, we found in a study we did that, that uh, the number of, of Employees on a block was strongly predictive of the amount of, of whether they were crime hotspots. Uh, you know, and you could think about people go to work, they have money when they leave, they park their cars, and those can create all sorts of opportunities for crime. Uh, there are also probably social reasons for crime occurring in, in certain places. And a study supported by the National Institutes of Health in Baltimore, Maryland, we tried to look at uh, social fe- features of hotspots and how they compare it to non-hospitals. 
And one of the things we found that was really interesting is that uh, on streets where people were more likely to trust their neighbors, more likely to say they'd become involved in doing something about problems, those streets had a lot less crime. Mm. An example of that is on, on the hot spots, on the hottest spots in Baltimore that we studied, the hottest street segments, about uh, something like 85% of, uh, of people who lived in the streets said uh, that they trusted their neighbors. And on the, uh, excuse me, uh, that was on the hot spots, I'm sorry, I got that backwards, but in the hot spots, about 45% of people said they trusted their neighbors. And in the cold spots, without any crime, something like 80 or 90% said they trusted their neighbors. So uh, there are opportunity features of streets. There are, uh, that we can all think about what they are, maybe having businesses. Uh, uh, there's something called crime attractors and crime facilitators, uh, bus stops or transportation nodes where a lot of people are coming around, provide opportunity for a robbery, for example, and other sorts of crime that involve taking from strangers. Uh, there's also social reasons on streets where people are less trusting of their neighbors and less willing to intervene. We tend to have more crime. So this is an area that's just beginning to develop. If the other young people are thinking in criminology, most of criminology is about why people commit crime. But this new area of why there's more crime in certain places has become a tremendous area of opportunity with lots of new discoveries to make. So now I want to talk about policing and then we'll attempt to tie it together. So what do we know about, what do you know about policing right now? What has your work been about? And then what are the specific advancements that have been going on in policing recently? Look, there are a lot of areas of policing, but I think what you mean is in terms of police effect. Yeah. And also in terms of effects on communities. So if we look at police effectiveness, uh, I recently chaired an, a, a, a committee uh, of the National Academy of Sciences, the Committee on Pro Proactive Policing. We tried to do was to assess whether proactive policing strategies are effective. Now, by proactive policing, we meant when the police go out and try to prevent crime, right, as a strategy. A lot of policing is, is not about anything like that. It's about, I go to the, uh, someone calls me, they just had a, a robbery, I need to write it down for their insurance. Uh, hopefully we might catch the person, maybe that'll prevent crime. But a lot of policing is reactive and is uh, really based on just responding to citizen concerns and needs. But the police are also concerned, especially over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, have been also very concerned about the issue of how can we prevent crime in a systematic way. And that is proactive policing as we understood it. And there have been a bunch of innovations in proactive policing in this period. Uh, so I don't want to go through a, a complete list, but give you, you know, let's say the highlights of some of the things that are most important. We found that hotspots policing, remember before we spoke about uh, crime is very concentrated. Well, it makes sense if crime is occurring at a very small number of places or in a very small number of places in a city uh, have an awful lot of crime that you want to pay attention to, then uh, what you want to do is to concentrate police at those places. Indeed, the hotspot story is important, I think, uh, to understanding the whole idea of proactive policing. Uh, before before the 1990s, really, there was an assumption uh, since at least the 1970s that police did not reduce crime. Uh, David Bailey, who was a, a very important police scholar uh, uh, in the last century, in the early 1990s, wrote a book in which he said uh, that 
you know, the police cannot, uh, scientific evidence says the police cannot prevent crime. It's a myth among police and the public. Now, uh, when he wrote that, there was already beginning to emerge evidence that the police could prevent crime. But when he wrote that, really, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, most of the evidence about policing was it didn't have much. Hotspots policing was one of the first new proactive policing strategies to develop. Uh, and what it did was capitalize on the idea that crime is occurring in a relatively small number of places, as I already mentioned. So the question became, if I focused in on those small, those hot spots, could I get a crime prevention benefit? And uh, Lawrence Sherman and I, in 1995, published the randomized controlled trial. That's like in medicine, where you randomly allocate, in this case, hot spots to treatment control. The treatment hot spots got extra patrol, uh, uh, and the uh, control hot spots got whatever ordinary level of police reaction they would get. And we found that there was a significant deterrent impact. And since then, there have been 60 or 70 studies showing uh, the same result. So is hotspots policing basically you take those 1% of streets and you put a bunch of cops on those streets? Absolutely. Okay. Right? You might choose specific types of hotspots, like hotspots for robbery or, or uh, other sorts of crime, but that's it. You, you, you look for that 1%, maybe less than that 1%. Yeah. That include an awful lot of the crime, and those are the places where people are suffering the most. And you bring the police to them. But what was important was that that we did that. We developed this randomized trial, and then there have been a series of randomized trials and other sorts of design studies to look at this. And they, the evidence is very strong that if you focus in on hotspots, it should have a deterrent effect. And based, as I said, on very, very strong evidence, often from randomized trials. That was very important because that. That sort of opened up the door to the idea that the police could prevent crime. You know, in your generation, people think, oh, it's obvious the police can prevent crime. But if you went to graduate school when I did, you know, you learned was the police could not prevent crime. So that was a radical idea. And it grew out that I think the most important initial set of studies were out of the hotspots area, developing from this idea of crime, that crime is very concentrated uh, at crime hotspots. And so hotspots policing is a proactive policing strategy that's been shown to have a, a strong impact. I, I want to just mention that, that the initial response to that was if you push down a crime at a hotspot, it's just going to move around the corner, right? With some people call yeah. it the balloon mob. If I push down here, it's going to pop up there. And there have also been a, a series of studies now that show that not only does crime generally not move around the corner, but generally the areas nearby the hotspots also get better. In other words, if you focus in on the hotspots, the areas nearby will also get So what's focused deterrence policing? Excuse me? So what's focused deterrence policing? Okay, so there have been a, a bunch of other innovations also that seem to be successful. Another is focused deterrence policing. Focused deterrence policing is built on some similar principles to hotspots policing. We know that a very small number of offenders produce most of violent crime. Those offenders are often known by the police or by the community. Uh, and they often operate in specific places, right? Specific hotspots, if you like. And so a series of, of studies have been developed in which they bring what they call focused deterrence. In other words, they, they, they identify who these offenders are, they bring the police, prosecutors, the community, for example, church leaders, uh, school leaders, to exercise pressure on those um, uh, uh, on those hotspots, on those individuals that are causing a lot of the problems. And this 
This group of studies also shows strong evidence that focused deterrence will help reduce serious violence in the community. There are other strategies that have been found to be effective. Third-party policing, in which the police use third parties, like landowners, to help enforce rules at places, or bar owners. In other words, let them enforce that people don't get so drunk, or that they're careful about what's going on in their store. And the police work with these third parties. A problem-oriented policing is another uh, innovation that's been found to have uh, the strong evidence of effectiveness. Uh, in problem-oriented policing, the police go to uh, someplace, often a hot spot, they examine the kinds of problems that occur there, and they look for solutions uh, for those specific sorts of problems. That kind of approach has also been found to be effective. Now, interestingly enough, some popular approaches of, poli uh, of proactive policing have not been found effective, at least in reducing crime. Uh, Community-oriented policing, which has been found to improve relationships between police and the community, has not been found mm -hmm. to have crime prevention effective. Uh, procedural justice police, which focuses on the police behaving in more just ways in the public. I think that's a good thing anyway, but it hasn't been found to have a strong crime prevention benefit. Uh, broken windows policing that is focused on large areas, or stop question frisk focused on large areas, have not been found to be effective. Though I should note that most of those strategies focused on hotspots has been found to be effective. So what we know today from this report that I worked on for the National Academy of Sciences on proactive policing is there are a bunch of proactive policing strategies that the police can use to prevent crime, and there's strong evidence that those can work. So how do you think about the impact on communities of this of these different like these different practices? Because you mentioned stop and frisk and broken windows policing as two practices that didn't really work. But those were also those had really negative um, effects on the community and contributed, at least um, broken windows did, to mass incarceration. So how do you think about it? I'm thinking about specifically like the focused deterrence policing. When you like, when police look at specific people and sort of expect them to commit crime, is there an impact on the community? And is that maybe balanced out by the fact that it's not policing the community at whole? It's only policing certain parts of it. If that makes sense. It's good. Done your homework. A lot of reporters, <laughs> to be me, haven't done their homework. So, a good work. Look, I, I think this is this is a, a very important issue because we're not only concerned about uh, whether the police prevent crime, uh, we're also concerned about what kind of impacts uh, their activities are having on the. Um, many of the proactive policing strategies I've just noted don't seem to have much impact on community attitudes. Hotspots policing. Problem-oriented policing, uh, third-party policing. In general, these don't have much impact. Of all of them, by the way, problem-oriented policing seems to have uh, uh, at least some positive impact. But hmm. many of the strategies that I told you about before, well, they don't have negative impacts, and that's an important that's an important thing to say because in today's atmosphere, many people are worried that whenever the police do anything, they're going to have a negative impact. In the, community. the evidence for that is not there for many. There are certain strategies that have great potential for negative. The stop, question, and frisk is the most uh, clear example. We know that uh, when you stop teenagers, it can have a very negative effect on them in terms of their, uh, their psychological orientation, in terms of achievement, in terms of health. So that stop, question, and frisk can have very negative outcomes. We know also that people who are stopped are often not very happy with the police. And we know that can have negative consequences also in terms of police processing. 
because that can be the beginning of a process that can lead to negative outcomes for those individuals. Uh, there's, so I'd say there's good evidence that SQF, for example, can have negative impact. And what that means to me is you have to be very careful where you apply them. Does that mean you should never use a stop question and frisk or pedestrian stops, which don't necessarily involve uh, a frisk? Uh, I'm not sure because there is evidence that a crime hotspots, uh, a stop question, a stop SQFs can have positive impact in reducing violence. So you might, so if you think about the evidence, you might say the following: You'd say, you know, you shouldn't be using SQFs as a general prevention strategy. That's precisely what New York City did, and that was a bad idea. And have very negative outcomes in the long run for the community's view of the police. But maybe there are certain sorts of places for which stop, question, and frisk would be a, a reasonable strategy. Um, let me just close something so we don't hear that. Sorry. Uh, but there may be certain places for which stop, question, and frisk is a, a reasonable police strategy. Where are those places? Well, to me, there'd be places where there's very serious violence occurring. I collected data in Baltimore, Maryland on hotspot streets, and some of those streets we got shot at. Those are not safe places for children who live in that street. Whatever the street had two children who were shot in the last month. Uh, you want to do something pretty serious at that street, maybe SQFs would be, the, would be a reasonable approach because we have good evidence it's going to reduce the problems there. Now, having said that, you should also be doing SQFs in constitutional ways, in ways that are legal. Yeah. That means the police have to have good training. In New York City, again, the police do not have good training. And it also means the police should be trained in how to do these types of activities in ways to create the least negative impact. In other words, if you were going for some me a medical uh, procedure, the doctors would try to do it in a way with the least possible negative impact for you, even though they may have to may be the best procedure in that case. So the police should learn about how to do these things so they'll impact the least. They should know that stopping teenagers can have very negative impact. So what, what can you do to mitigate some of those negative consequences? Now, to be frank, there isn't good scientific evidence yet. I have a randomized trial that I've tried to run. It's not very easy in this day and age because of these concerns about SQFs. But I think we need to learn more. SQFs should only be used in very specific circumstances, and hopefully they can be carried out in legal ways and also in procedurally just ways. Uh, you talk about broken windows. They, an approach that leads us to prosecute minor offenses is also can have a... Uh, 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 you know, negative outcome. Uh, number one, it can bring a lot of people that would not normally have contact with the criminal justice system into the criminal justice system. And we know the criminal justice system can have negative impacts. Going to jail does not usually make you a less likely to commit crime, contrary to what people often think. Now, sometimes in jails there can be programs that help reduce addiction and things of that sort. But in general, I'd say I think the evidence is that, that prison can... Uh, is, is, can create more criminality, if you like. Uh, in any event, so you need to think twice about these sorts of activities. You also need to think about what the evidence is. I've just done a study now uh, in which we're finding that it's not broken windows, physical disorder that creates problems, it's social disorder uh, that creates the sort of impacts on the community. Well, if that's true, what can we do? How can we do it in a way to create the least damage? And, and I think there lies the key that policing, by definition, has elements that reduce freedom that can have negative consequences. They can stop you. You can be arrested. These are, these are things that can have negative consequences. They're things that reduce freedom for people. 
So that means we want to be sure to try to mitigate as much as possible in any proactive strategy the, the, the level of those sorts of activities. Is there any sense that certain types of proactive policing, and I'm thinking more specifically about hotspots policing, can actually be like a positive for community police relationships because it protects high crime areas and it also doesn't really go, it's not like a people-focused approach, it doesn't go after specific people? Yeah, you know, I've said that, and uh, I think that it's a way of, I'll tell you another way it's positive, is that if the police, if, if you think of policing, and I don't mean this, it, it sounds more negative than I mean it. Policing is an infringement on liberty in a way. What we do is we say to the police, we're willing to give you certain powers because we have problems we want you to help us solve. But the police always have to remember that it's the public who's giving them those powers, and they therefore have to behave in ways. So in that sort of setting, hotspots policing says to the police, you know what, you shouldn't be using law enforcement. You shouldn't be just going all over the place doing stop, question, and frisk or other things, whatever you're doing. Maybe you shouldn't be doing SQFs in nearly all places, as I mentioned before. But certainly, you should be using law enforcement very, in a very careful way. And uh, hotspots, what it does is it forces the police, it pulls them to those places where problems are most likely to occur. And that keeps them away, in a sense, or reduces their intrusion in other places that don't need police. As you noted earlier, most places in the city, right, uh, are, are, are not hotspots, right? So in most places, policing is probably not that critical. And withdrawing a bit from those places and pushing the police, and the police pushing themselves in the places where they're really needed can have the benefit of not mistakenly, let's say, uh, using law enforcement or harassing people or doing other things that make people feel their liberty is being infringed uh, in places where it's not necessary. By the way, that is the theme of of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers, in which he uses the hotspots idea uh, to talk about where the police should be focusing and to uh, illustrate uh, a problem related to an individual that occurred who was stopped by the police uh, that he describes at the beginning of the book. I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed, and make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.